bow to my grandmother, Curdie, she said. I don't see any grandmother, answered Curdie rather gruffly. Don't you see my grandmother when I'm sitting in her lap? exclaimed the princess. No, I don't, reiterated Curdie in an offended tone. Don't you see the lovely fire of roses, white ones among them this time? asked Irene, almost as bewildered as he. No, I don't, answered Curdie, almost sulkily. Nor the blue bed, nor the rose-coloured counterpane, nor the beautiful light like the moon hanging from the roof. You're making game of me, your royal highness. But after what we've come through together this day, I don't think it's kind of you, said Curdie, feeling very much hurt. Then what do you see? asked Irene, who perceived at once that for her not to believe him was at least as bad as for him not to believe her. I see a big bare garret room, like the one in Mother's cottage, only big enough to take the cottage itself in and leave a good mansion all round, answered Curdie. And what more do you see? I see a tub and a heap of musty straw and a withered apple and a ray of sunlight coming through a hole in the middle of the roof and shining on your head and making all the place look a curious dusky brown. I think you'd better drop it, Princess, and go down to the nursery like a good girl. But don't you hear my grandmother talking to me? asked Irene. I was pointing out last time that the Christian life is simply a process of having your natural self changed into a Christ self. Welcome to the Inklings Variety Hour, where fans and scholars of C.S. Lewis, J.R.R. Tolkien, Charles Williams, Owen Barfield, and others, such as, for instance, George MacDonald, discuss their works and lives. I'm Chris Pipkin, Associate Professor of English. Joining me today, we have Logan Huggins, producer extraordinaire, or editor extraordinaire. I, like, just to make a confession, I'm not sure what the actual difference is with podcasting between an editor and a producer, whatever you are, you're doing it very, very well. Well, thank you. Yeah. Thank you for having me on. I don't know what I am either, but I'm happy to help, happy to contribute to the show. And uh, if Mel Brooks tells us anything, it's the producers are trustworthy people. And uh, we should always, we should always want more producers in our lives. Bloom, where do you think you're going? You've already had your toilet break. I'm not going into the toilet. I'm going into show business. And the so, producers. And the producers, exactly. Thank you so much for having me. I'm super excited about being here and uh, super excited about getting into The Princess and the Goblin. Yeah, yeah. Today we're going to be talking about the rest of The Princess and the Goblin. It's the last bit, which covers about half the book. Buckle in. But before we do, we have a bit of news about the podcast. Logan has been working tirelessly to create a YouTube channel for the podcast. Logan, do you want to say anything about that? Yeah, of course. So we, in the attempt to make our show as findable as possible, as easy to find on the internet as possible, we've slowly begun the process of transferring several of our recent episodes to YouTube. And uh, our plans are to continue to push out all of our current audio to YouTube just to make it more easy for people to find us and uh, interact with us there. Eventually, over time, we hope to have some more fun contents pushed out to the YouTube channel. So if you are a YouTube fan out there and you are interested in learning more about us and learning more about what we're going to be coming out with in the future, so make sure to look us up. YouTube search for Inklings Variety Hour, where the first one that pops up. And uh, yeah, subscribe, like, smash that like button, as they say. We will be seeing you very soon. Yeah, and also, um, let me just say uh, as well, please do, if you enjoy this show um, and you want other people to find it, leave us reviews, recommend it to friends, or, or just write in and tell us you like this show. It helps motivate us to, to do the show when we know people are listening and when we know people are enjoying it. By all means, if you have suggestions, we'd love to hear those. Inklings Variety Hour at gmail.com and we're also on facebook and other places too so take take a look for us and we will be posting out a lot of new fun content very very soon yeah. Yeah.
Alright, well, let's get back to the Princess and the Goblin. Quick summary of the book so far. Some memory refresher with the, with the basic plot and characters. So we have the princess, Irene. Irene is... What is she, Logan? Is she eight? She is a frisky eight-year-old, I believe. She is... As George McDonald so faithfully describes to us, she is the perfect princess. She's very graceful, very adventurous, very caring, and wants to keep her word all the time. During the first half of this book, she has had some very interesting interactions with a woman who claims to be her great, 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 etc. grandmother. Come to find out, this grandmother is sort of a Christ figure, God figure, could be anything figure, very spiritual figure. And so that's been very fun to see. Uh, we also have Ludi. Who's Ludi, Chris? Why, Ludi is Irene's nurse, and Ludi is often cross with Irene, especially when Irene has to do things that Ludi doesn't understand, such as visit her great-great-great-great-grandmother, in whom Ludi does not believe. She's a nice little skeptic to, like, prick at and yep. give some distress to poor little Irene. And then, of course, as they go out and about, they have a few small adventures during the first half of the book. They interact with a young lad named Curdy. Now, who's Curdy? What's he all about? Curdy is a minor, and Curdy is old enough by now. I think he's about 12. He's old enough now to go down and mine himself. The thing about Curdy is he's not afraid pretty much of anything. The perfect little adventure boy. That's right. Rough and tumble, makes up rhymes, harasses monsters whenever he wants. So unafraid, very brave, fearless, outdoorsy, wants to do the right thing and be brave. So yeah, he is all boy. And it's a good thing because these mountains are plagued with goblins who are these strange creatures that decided to go underground literally when there was some sort of political problem. But underground, they became misshapen. Their heads got really, really, really hard. Their feet got really, really soft and toeless. They were deformed in many other ways, and they are perpetual enemies of the king and the miners and the others of the king's people. So always calls them mischief, those goblins. That's right. They always have and probably always will. The thing about goblins is that Curdy and some of the other miners, but mainly Curdy, know how to beat them. The way that you chase off the goblins is really do one of two things. You can sing songs, and that's the thing that Curdy mainly does, or, or, or chant rhymes, right? One of the first adventures in the book, when Curdy first encounters Princess Irene and Ludie, they're beset by gar goblins. Curdy chants a rhyme at the goblins, and the goblins run off. The other way is by stomping on their soft little feet that don't have toes and that apparently works as well but for curdy all he has to do is rhyme uh the goblins run away and um and and he has saved the day uh, the princess is so grateful that she offers him a kiss but her nurse ludi says no 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 it's not proper for a princess to kiss crude little minor boy so curdy and and irene for a while go off and have their own sort of separate adventures um, irene's mainly involving her great great grandmother and seeing her again and curdy mainly involving spying on the goblins to find out what they're up to because they are up to something um, and he finds out that they're planning to um, flood the mines if their other plan does not work out their other plan we will find out pretty soon but it's uh it's it's quite sinister uh, the princess also has a king papa uh, who, who comes back occasionally and checks in on his daughter you know she can't stay with him all the time because he has to be out and about checking up on the different parts of his kingdom and then there's also the goblins creatures the goblins creatures are these animals that were taken underground by the goblins until they became deformed like the goblins and they are as mischievous and malicious as the goblins are and uh, they serve to scare Irene back up to her great-grandmother one night where the, her great-grandmother gives her a, a ring as well as a string kind of attached to that ring it's supposed to lead her to her great-grandmother, but her great-grandmother says it may lead her through ways that she doesn't expect to get back to her great-grandmother. Yeah, that's 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 really where we left things. Curdy also has a clue that he 
attaches to his pickaxe handle to allow him to go down into the goblin caves and spy on them, find his way back. So two kids, two clues at this point, and they will end up most likely running into each other. Uh, anything I left out there, Logan, that that, um, that we should mention? No, I think that's, that's a pretty good summation. We have our characters in motion. They both had their clues, like you said. They're both sort of on a forward trajectory, both trekking very quickly towards the mystery, and uh, we will find out what happens next. Curdy on his way, his... String is leading him in strange directions, ends up going into the middle of goblin territory, and he overhears the plans being made by the royal family, and they seem to have something to do with the princess Irene. The king and queen talking with their son, Prince Harelip, which is a great name for a for for a goblin. In the animated adaptation, they changed it to like Prince Frog something. Um <laughs> we- uh, pr- Prince Froggy or Frog? Yeah, I don't remember. Weak sauce. Um, I know, I know. and the Prime Minister were talking together. He was sure of the Queen by her shoes, for as she warmed her feet at the fire, he saw them quite plainly. That will be fun, said the one he took for the Crown Prince. It was the first whole sentence he heard. I don't see why you should think it's such a grand affair, said his stepmother, tossing her head backward. You must remember, my spouse, interposed his majesty, as if making excuse for his son. He has got the same blood in him. His mother... Don't talk to me of his mother. You positively encourage his unnatural fancies. Whatever belongs to that mother ought to be cut out of him. You forget yourself, my dear, said the king. I don't, said the queen. Nor you either. If you expect me to approve of such coarse taste, you will find yourself mistaken. I don't wear shoes for nothing. You must acknowledge, however, the king said with a little groan, that this at least is no whim of Herlips, but a matter of state policy. You are well aware that his gratification comes purely from the pleasure of sacrificing himself to the public good. Does it not, Herlip? Yes, father, of course it does, and it will be nice to make her cry. I'll have the skin taken off between her toes and tie them up till they grow together. Then her feet will be like other people's, and there will be no occasion for her to wear shoes. Do you mean to insinuate I've got toes, you unnatural witch? cried the queen, and she moved angrily towards Harelip. The councillor, however, who was betwixt them, leaned forward, so as to prevent her touching him, but only as if to address the prince. "'Your royal highness,' uh, he said, "'possibly requires to be reminded "'that you have got three toes yourself, "'one on one foot, two on the other,' <laughs> shouted the queen triumphantly. The councillor, encouraged by this mark of favour, went on. "'It seems to me, your royal highness,' It would greatly endear you to your future people, proving to them that you are not the less one of themselves, that you had the misfortune to be born of a son-mother, if you were to command upon yourself the comparatively slight operation which, in a more extended form, you so wisely meditate with regard to your future princess. <laughs> laughed the Queen, louder than before, and the King and the Minister joined in the laugh. Harelip growled, and for a few moments the others continued to express their enjoyment of his discomfiture. The Queen was the only one Curdy could see with any distinctness. She sat sideways to him, and the light of the fire shone full upon her face. He could not consider her handsome, her nose was certainly broader at the end than its extreme length, and her eyes, instead of being horizontal, were set up like two perpendicular eggs, one on the broad and the other on the small end. Her mouth was no bigger than a small buttonhole until she laughed, when it stretched from ear to ear, only, to be sure, 
her ears were very nearly in the middle of her cheeks. Anxious to hear everything they might say, Curdy ventured to slide down a smooth part of the rock just under him, to a projection below, upon which he thought to rest. But whether he was not careful enough, or the projection gave way, down he came with a rush on the floor of the cavern, bringing with him a great rumbling shower of stones. The goblins jumped from their seats, in more anger than consternation, for they had never yet seen anything to be afraid of in the palace. Carolip is quite sinister, and he seems to have designs on something. Someone very much hinted that it is a royal female person, but it's not said outright who it is. Um, anything else you notice from this passage? Well, I think we, we mentioned it last episode, but yeah, I love how it's a juxtaposition between these sort of earthy, underground, uncouth creatures, and they're speaking like medieval, fanciful ladies and gentlemen. And it's, I imagine he's doing that on purpose because it is so ridiculous and so funny that, yeah, these guys who are arguing about numbers of toes and insulting each other and about to beat each other's heads in, they're also using words like betwixt and uh, your highness greatly endear you to future people, providing you're not less one of them. So it's just like, yeah, it's a great like contradiction. And uh, yeah, we, I know we spent lots of time talking about how fun the language of the trolls, uh, the trolls, mm-hmm. how fun the language of the goblins are. But uh, yeah, that really hits, that really gets hammered home here, I believe. The royal family, upon seeing Curdy slide down, like right there in the midst of them, they call the guards. But Curdy, of course, resorts to his normal way of defending himself, even though there are tons of guards, right? And start to stomp on feet and um, uh, shout rhymes. However, there's one who's immune to Curdy's strategies, and that is the queen who wears granite shoes. Curdy's trying to stomp on her shoes, but he can't do it. She can stomp much more effectively on his feet. She ends up defeating him and shutting him up in the corner of the palace, leaving him to starve and to make up rhymes to defend himself. While in prison, though, he overhears a little bit more of the royal goblin family's plans, mostly concerning starving him, but often alluding to their plans against the sun dwellers, um, i.e. the humans. Meanwhile, in the castle, Irene wakes up the same morning and after being startled, sets out to find her great-grandmother. She feels her great-grandmother's thread, but instead of taking her up the stairs, it leads her into the mountains, into a cavern, and through a heap of stones, which she has to slowly take apart. She's kind of shocked by this, um, and she she's worried. The string that's attached to this ring that her grandmother gave her is um, is misleading her, right? But after having a good cry, she begins to clear the stone, where the clue sort of winds around them. And then slowly she starts to hear Curdy's song. And he's singing quite angrily, Jabber, bother, smash, you'll have it all in the crash. Jabber, smash, bother, you'll have it the worst of the bother. Smash, bother, jabber. Here Curdy stopped, either because he could not find a rhyme to jabber, or because he remembered what he had forgotten when he woke up at the sound of Irene's labours, that his plan was to make the goblins think he was getting weak but he had uttered enough to let Irene know who he was. "'It's Curdie!' she cried joyfully. "'Hush, hush!' came Curdie's voice again from somewhere. "'Speak softly!' "'Why, you are singing loud?' said Irene. "'Yes, but they know I am here, and they don't know you are. Who are you?' "'I'm Irene,' answered the princess. "'I know who you are quite well, and you're Curdie.' "'Why?' However did you come here, Irene? My great-great-grandmother sent me, and I think I've found out why. You can't get out, I suppose. No, I can't. Uh, What are you doing? Clearing away a huge heap of stones. (gasps) There's a princess, exclaimed Curdie in a tone of delight, but still speaking in little more than a whisper. I can't think how you got here, though. My grandmother sent me after her thread. I don't know what you mean, said Curdy. But so you're there, it doesn't much matter. So rather than go back the way she came, and and this, by the way, this sets up a little bit more of this basic tension between Curdy and the princess about um, about the uh, great grandmother. Curdy wants to run back and go back the way the princess came, but the princess refuses. She continues to follow the invisible string, which Curdy can neither see nor feel. Uh, Curdie has no choice but to follow her, and they creep past sleeping goblins. 
uh, as they do, he sees the queen lying next to the king um, in, in their bed, and he takes one of the queen's granite shoes on the way out um, and sees that she actually has six toes herself. On the way and afterwards, they become annoyed with each other because only the prin only Princess Irene could feel the string. Just as they thought they saw a gleam behind them, the thread brought them to a very narrow opening through which Irene crept easily and Curdie with difficulty. Now, said Curdie, I think we shall be safe. Of course we shall, returned Irene. Why do you think so? asked Curdie. Because my grandmother is taking care of us. That's all nonsense, said Curdie. I don't know what you mean. Then if you don't know what I mean, what right have you to call it nonsense? asked the princess, a little offended. I beg your pardon, Irene, said Curdie. I did not mean to vex you. Later on, we get more doubting of the grandmother. But how did you find your way to me, persisted Curdie. I told you already, answered Irene, by keeping my finger upon my grandmother's thread, as I am doing now. You don't mean you've got the thread there. Of course I do. I have told you so ten times already. I have hardly, except when I was removing the stones, taken my finger off it. There, she added, guiding Curdie's hand to the thread. You feel it yourself, don't you? I feel nothing at all, replied Curdie. Then what can be the matter with your finger? I feel it perfectly. To be sure, it is very thin, and in the sunlight looks just like the thread of a spider, though there are many of them twisted together to make it. But for all that, I can't think why you shouldn't feel it as well as I do. Curdie was too polite to say he did not believe there was any thread there at all. What he did say was, well, I can make nothing of it. I can, though, and you must be glad of that, for it will do for both of us. We're not out yet, said Curdie. We soon shall be, returned Irene confidently. And now the thread went downwards and led Irene's hand to a hole in the floor of the cavern, whence came a sound of running water, which they had been hearing for some time. persuades Curdie to come up and meet her great-grandmother. He comes up, feels like she's been playing a trick on him because he can't see the same thing that she can see. Logan, what do you make of this basic division between the princess's perspective and Curdie's perspective? What, what does George MacDonald seem to be trying to say? I love this part of the story. I think this is such a powerful, potent part of the story. And uh, I really do love the way that he weaves it through so gracefully. But yeah, to answer your question, I feel like he's trying to get to that idea of having faith and believing in what's true, believing in what you know is right, even when those around you can't see it, even when those around you don't understand or don't see how it could be possible that we're doing this. You know, it seems like nonsense to Curdy. It's spider webs that have been weaved together. That's ridiculous. Uh, I love that he just said, well, I just can't make anything of it. I can I can make nothing of it. And I love the princess response of, well, I can. Yeah. And you should be glad of that. You know, it's, just, it's a very simple, very childlike faith. You know, they're both children, but it's just a very very sweet, clear picture of believing. Again, I love this whole section. I love how they're guided down into the, the mountain. They're literally being guided down into the depths, into the darkness, through the valley of the shadow of death, you know, like into the enemy territory, into Mordor, into the wilderness, whatever you might want to call it, through following a little tiny soft still thread yeah. but yeah now that they're together and they're they're following the thread it's such a i don't know it's such a powerful picture of that not being distracted by your surroundings blocking out all of the despair that might surround us blocking out all the darkness and just holding so fast to what is true and holding fast to what is the guiding light you know and i, I love that because yeah this is such a sweet it's a powerful symbol but also it's so simple that children can understand it you know it's such a sweet clear picture as for why he doesn't see her yeah, I think it just was supposed to hammer home how even if your companions don't yeah. see, don't understand it, don't see why, yeah. it's still imperative that the princess holds on to the thread, to hold on and follow the thread, even if she's following it alone. Yeah, I mean, there's a, you know, I think they 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 do just come out and state this, that it's her it's her duty to do what she knows to be true. You know, that, that knowledge of truth ought to prevent her from being overly offended when other people don't share it 
right? Um, because that certainty brings with it a kind of confidence. Mm-hmm. But yeah, Princess Irene is really hurt by Curdie not only not seeing the same thing as her, but also being rude about it, kind of being dismissive of her. And she asked her grandmother, what does it all mean, grandmother? She sobbed and burst into fresh tears um, when they come up to the room and Curdie can't see the grandmother and leaves. And, it means, my love, that I did not mean to show myself. Curdy is not yet able to believe some things. Seeing is not believing, it is only seeing. You remember I told you that if Ludy were to see me, she would rub her eyes, forget the half she saw, and call the other half nonsense. Yes, but I should have thought Curdy. You are right. Curdy is much farther on than Ludy, and you will see what will come of it. But in the meantime, you must be content, I say, to be misunderstood for a while. We are all very anxious to be understood and it is very hard not to be. But there is one thing much more necessary. What is it, grandmother? To understand other people. Yes, grandmother, I must be fair, for if I'm not fair to other people, I'm not worth being understood myself. I see. So as Curdy can't help it, I will not be vexed with him. But just wait. Oh my gosh, I, I love that. I love that so much. That is such a great, great, great setup just that whole idea of but in the meantime you must be content i say to be misunderstood for a while i again just to go back to that sort of metaphor of a walk of faith a walk of holding on to your light holding on to your beliefs even when those around you are mocking you even when those around you are leaving you and calling you names it reminds me a ton of when we were talking about in Prince Caspian, when Lucy can see Aslan, yeah. but she's the only one who can see Aslan, and she's having to pressure her older, more influential siblings into walking through the mist and going through all mm-hmm. these difficult paths just because she yeah. says that she can see Aslan. It's oh, it's such a great, simple way to show that the importance of not being swayed by shame or being embarrassed yeah. or being uh, humiliated. I don't know. It, it, gets, it gives me goosebumps thinking about it. But yeah, I love that. And I, I really appreciate how clearly George McDonald lays it out so that even a, a child can understand it. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, this is clearly impactful for Lewis because it, it this motif gets repeated so much in uh, Narnia, uh, at least. Uh, I'm sure in other things too. Along with that, I also really appreciate how your grandmother and Irene just let Curdy go. Like they, yes. The grandmother says you have to let him, you have to be at peace. You have to be content to be misunderstood. And I think that is such a great lesson for us even today, because there are so many people who are for lack of a better word, just wanting to pick a fight and they want to win the argument. They want to mm-hmm. be understood. They want to be heard. Yeah. They want to get their message across one way or the other. They don't care who they're going to run over to make sure they hear, you know, the good news, right. whether it kills them or not, you know? Yeah. And yeah. I love this of just like, yeah. if we are to do what we need to do and to be faithful, we have to be willing to walk those paths of misunderstanding and sort of loneliness that comes with that and give people like Curdy and Ludi time yeah. to come to their own understanding over time. Yeah. yeah. And I think, you know, there's a lot of talk about, um, gosh, what's the term I want? Well, there's a, there's a, there's a lot of assumption that to not believe in truth is to somehow be humble, right? Um, and in fact, it's it's exactly the opposite. That believing that something is true allows you to have this kind of humility where you say, you know what? Other people will see this in their own time, in their own way, and it will be brought before them. Right. And to have that sort of trust that that, you know, the great great grandmother or God is is working on people in in their own way. And it doesn't excuse us from following him for as far as we can. But it also doesn't mean that we somehow need to in order to make our vision of reality true, somehow impose it on everybody else. Right which is a lot of times what we'll end up doing because we don't have enough confidence that our vision of reality is actually objectively true. George MacDonald illustrates this so well here. Princess Irene is just a, she's able to credit Curdie with the best intentions, right? Able to respect him and respect his disagreements and also have faith that to the extent that what she sees is true, he will encounter that truth as well. 
yeah, completely. I agree completely. And in doing so, it keeps the grandmother as the hero, which I think is another tendency that we really, I think, in our modern culture, we'd love to put ourselves in the shoes of the hero and do the thing and act for the Lord and kick down those doors and evangelize and take don't take no for an answer. We want we want us to win the battle. You know, we want us to take the prisoners and we want us to save the day. But so much of the Christian walk is the way of the meek and the humble and the following the ultimate hero, which is the Lord and the Holy Spirit, you know. And so, yeah, I think this is a great protector against that tendency to put ourselves in the hero seat and say, oh, well, it's up to me. I have to do this or I have to X, Y, Z. And it's not up to us at all. You know, we have no control whatsoever. We have no power to begin with. And to pretend we do is deceiving ourselves. So, yeah. 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 And there's also, I mean, Princess Irene kind of mourns, you know, that that Curdy can't see the same thing as, as she does. This person who has, you know, who, who has saved her and whom she has saved, who's important to her. She's, you know, deeply upset that he can't see the same thing that, that she does. And the grandmother doesn't say, don't be upset, mm-hmm. you know, because because in part that mourning and that kind of yearning to have someone also see this wonderful thing that you see is important so it's a way of sharing in a way christ's burden right um and 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 something that drives us to prayer yeah and and that's you know obviously if we're going to be very one-to-one about this metaphor right but and i think there's room for that for sure Last little note that this reminds me of just on that topic of how we like to put ourselves in the hero seat. We like to put ourselves in those shoes and say, we, we're going to be the conquerors. We're going to be the victors. And in a way, in doing so, we leave out God. We leave out the work of the Holy Spirit and his power and his majesty in that. There's a great meme I saw, classical picture of David and Goliath. And, you know, David's about to or sling the stone into Goliath and Goliath's looking all big and high and mighty. In big, bold letters, it says, not you on David's head and not you on Goliath's said you know how many children's stories and children's bible studies have we been a part of well meaning probably but show us that oh you're david in this situation or you're noah in this situation or you're moses in this like you're the hero of the story and god's going to use you this specific way it's like no that's a dangerous way to think about the holy spirit or think about the way of the way the lord works the lord can clearly use us and the lord does amazing beautiful things through all his people clearly but it's not that sort of classical it's not that cheesy it's it's not that cheap of like, I'm going to be David. I'm going to slay all my enemies like David slayed Goliath, yeah, you know? Yeah. Well, especially in that moment, right? I, I mean, when David took up the stones and threw them at Goliath, he wasn't thinking, oh, this is a real David and Goliath moment. Um, <laughs> right. You know, because that, that story does not exist at that point in the same way. It really takes an act of faith without the image in his mind of David slaying Goliath, which we all now have, of course, um, you know, and, and that bears witness to the things that God can do with people who trust him. But it's people who trust him who maybe don't quite see how it all turns out and has faith in the process. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and so, you know, there might be, you know, paintings painted of us one day, but it won't be because we were really great. Um, it, it'll be because we followed uh, an invisible string, like a little girl, you know, um, to get back to our grandmother. Yeah. So, so Curdy is complaining about this to his mother and his mother has words for him that should sound probably kind of familiar to people who have read the lion, the witch in the wardrobe. They all sat silent for some time, pondering the strange tale. At last Curdy's mother spoke. You confess my boy. She said, there is something about the whole affair. You do not understand. Yes, of course, mother, he answered. I cannot understand how a child, knowing nothing about the mountain, or even that I was shut up in it, should come all that way alone, straight to where I was, and then after getting me out of the hole, lead me out of the mountain, too, or I should not have known a step of the way if it had been as light as the open air. Then you have no right to say what she told you was not true. She did take you out, and she must have had something to guide her. Why not a thread as well as a rope or anything else? There is something you cannot explain, 
and her explanation may be the right one. It's no explanation at all, mother, and I can't believe it. That may be only because you do not understand it. If you did, you would probably find it was an explanation and believe it thoroughly. I don't blame you for not being able to believe it, but I do blame you for fancying such a child would try to deceive you. Why should she? Depend upon it. She told you all she knew. Until you had found a better way of accounting for it all, you might at least have been more sparing of your judgment. Curdie's mother, you know, basically being the proto-Professor Kirk in The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, right? Um, and, and, and just kind of saying, well, how do you, you know, I know this seems impossible, but based on her character, you know she wouldn't willingly lie to you. It's it's interesting to see this from happening on both sides, right? That That the grandmother, the very one who should be upset that Curdie's not believing in her is the one that counsels uh, Irene not to mm-hmm. be too angry with Curdie. And then, and then Curdie's mother is, uh, is, is telling Curdie kind of the same thing about Irene and saying, maybe be a little open to, uh, to what she's saying. Yeah. That goes, that goes back to that whole idea of humility again, of just because you don't understand it doesn't mean that's not the way things are. I know we've had several conversations about how the Inklings are so good at mystifying our world and enchanting our world more than what we as sort of modern people can see in our scientifically uh, latent approaches to things. And uh, yeah, I think the seeds of that and the seeds of so many of what the Inklings are doing there is here. Well, it does seem ridiculous, but you know what? The world is a ridiculous place and the (laughs) outrageous things are more often reality than what you can imagine, Curdy, in your little small little minor boy imagination you know so i i love that i think this is a really sweet and caring from the mom too but yeah i think it it themes similar to other ones we've seen in williams and lewis and tolkien for sure yeah yeah it's a it's a slightly different approach than lewis often takes because i think lewis often like there's an implication that the one who can see the correct thing is has made a, a good moral choice um, not all the time like in in prince caspian i don't think that's so much the implication although it is um you know if you compare lucy with susan right if you compare lucy with edmund's like edmund hasn't really made a poor moral choice at that point but then when it comes to um when it comes to lucy being so hurt that nobody believes her about the wardrobe, which is not so much a matter of them seeing different things, but a matter of them. Edmund just downright lies that he hasn't been into the wardrobe. And the other two Pevensi kids think that Lucy must be crazy. There are other places too, where there's this sort of divergence, right? That's harmful to the people that know the truth. Sorry, not harmful, but hurtful to the people that know the truth in, in Narnia. So like the last battle, right? Where the dwarves won't consent to live in heaven. They believe that they're sitting in a stable rather than in paradise, you know, and they're trying to feed them food, like good food and things. And the dwarves are like, I got that muck and straw out of my mouth. Yeah, They right? won't, they won't be had. Yeah. They won't yeah. be convinced into the trick. Yeah. You know, they, they think they're, they're holding on to their little shed, their little box that they're, mm-hmm. they're happy and content with. So yeah, I, that's a great, that's a great yeah. one. Yeah. But for Lewis, it's almost always because one of them is deceiving themselves Right. And, and that deception ends up becoming an honest observation. Uh, if you deceive yourself for long enough, you start seeing the fake thing that you've been saying is there. But for Curdie, it's just that he's not quite ready yet. Right. Which is interesting. It's a, it's a different sort of it's, it's not really a moral strike against Curdie. He shouldn't have been mean to Princess Irene. He shouldn't have you know, been so quick to discount what she said. But him not being ready, quite ready to see the great grandmother yet is not, it's not a fault. Mm-hmm. It's, it's that he's just not ready yet. And Curdie is still very much, you know, one of the heroes of the story. Uh, so he feels kind of bad, you know, after, after time with his mother, he really wants to apologize to the princess Irene, but the problem is he's only a minor princess. Irene is a princess. And so he kind of has to try to put it out of his mind, but he also has to go back to the castle to figure out where the goblins are tunneling. Um, because he's figured out they seem to be tunneling towards uh, the castle with his ear to the ground and on the castle grounds, on the palace grounds, he's accidentally shot by the king's men who think he must be a goblin because they can't see very well in the dark. Um, and he's taken to the palace where he becomes ill. Meanwhile, the goblins are managing to tunnel into the king's wine cellar and report their success to the king. So goblin army on its way. And Curdie keeps dreaming that he hears the goblins tunneling 
which he does, and he keeps getting up to warn everybody, only to find out that he's still dreaming. 20 times he tried and 20 times he failed, for in fact, he was not awake, only dreaming he was. And finally, this dream, this like repetitive dream, where again and again and again, he's trying to get up and warn everybody that the goblins are tunneling into the castle. Finally, a lady with white hair, right, who of course is Irene's great-grandmother, comes to him in his dream and puts something on his leg to heal him and then puts him into a sound, dreamless sleep. So I think this is, this is fascinating and also shows influence on the Inklings because there's this moment in The Hobbit before Tolkien introduces his goblins where Bilbo is lying down in this cavern that seems like a shallow cavern. And in his dream, he sees a giant crack opening up. And then he wakes up and a big crack opens up in the cavern. So I wonder if in some way that's not Tolkien's way of sort of acknowledging MacDonald's influence on, on The Hobbit. I always wondered about that with The Hobbit. And I'd always wondered, why. well, why would you have Bilbo dream that a big black crack was opening up? And then just have that happen and have goblins come out. This seems to possibly shed light on that. Makes sense to me. Uh, yeah. Um, and then, and the other, the other connection is uh, uh, Eustace trying to get his dragon skin off um, in, in the Voyage of the Dawn Predator, uh, where he tries and tries and tries himself to get the dragon's skin off, and he can't do it because there's always another layer of dragon skin underneath. And then finally, Aslan comes and cuts the dragon skin, and it hurts cyclical trying and trying and trying and trying and then finally the divine figure comes and, and breaks you out of that cycle um, and gives you and gives you rest so i think both of those are are possibly echoes of this moment mm -hmm. this this might be a stretch but it even reminds me a little bit of that part in paralandra when ransom after the battle after they go through the core of the planet and ransom is beaten and bruised and he's just gone through this terrible terrible sort of physical and emotional fight and he's literally wandered through the pitch black core of the planet and he sort of gets gurgled up and spit out on a mountaintop to where he's sort of left just sort of floating in a small like paradise like little pond and he's surrounded by flowers and grass and <laughs> he can hear the sounds of nature around him and that in a way reminds me of this a little bit of how Curdy sort of stuck in one place healing and he's getting he's being spoken to mm -hmm. and being healed by the lady with the white hair where in Paralandra ransom ends up he sort of has a little bit of a convalescence is it convalescence is that the right word i'm using yeah yeah he sort of has a little convalescence as well in the fact that instead of someone coming to heal him it's sort of like the nature the natural world of Paralandra that sort of heals him over time he sort of has yep. the the fruit and the the grass and the nature and the plants sort of surrounding him c.s lewis describes it so beautifully it heals him it heals his mind it heals his heart it heals his wounds over his you know all these scrapes and bloody scabs that he has and it really is sort of like a rebirth of him uh, through this process which i find interesting because again lewis is such a fan of nature and such a fan of the power of nature to sort of lead us to the divine that yeah ransom definitely has a divine he has several divine interactions in that book but yeah he has a very poignant experience just by himself in a little cocoon of perfection there at the top of a mountain yeah. which i thought was really interesting i love that that's one of my favorite parts of paralandra well it'd be really interesting to trace connections between the great great grandmother and paralandra right because the planet itself is a feminine planet and it's a kind of angel as mm. well as being yeah. you know and and also of course he interacts the whole time with a the big you know, big great the... big grandmother and the big great big green lady yeah 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 it's a it's very much a book about a perfect version of femininity whether realized in human form or semi-human mm -hmm. form in uh in the person of a tenadril or in angelic form and the planet which is under the guardianship of the Oyarsa up until, you know, the great enthronement ceremony. Yeah, is a, is a nurturing planet, right? It's a healing planet, much the way that uh, the, the great grandmother nurtures. So yeah, I like the connection a lot. the cobs are in the house he grabs his shoes to do some stomping and a rhyming the goblins run away and he teaches the king's men to stamp their feet 
but they realize Irene is gone and that the goblin's plan was to kidnap her and marry her to Prince Harelip. There's chaos in the house. The goblins have broken in through the wine cellar and they're just starting to harass people. They're attacking the amount of soldiers that are there, sort of harassing Ludi and all the other sort of maidservants. Right. And the soldiers are trying to fight them off, but they're goblins. They're big and strong. Yeah. And then Curdy runs into the rescue at just the last moment and all of the soldiers are sort of tied up in the floor or sort of beat up and sort of laying everywhere he has the i forget how they phrase it but it's like it's their feet it's the feet stomp their feet and he comes in and says that shortly thereafter all the king's men are like i imagine this great stomp routine of just all these great men in chain mail and whatever just throwing their swords and shields away but just doing big huge boot stomps all over the castle yeah 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 and and the goblins have been using their secret weapon of the queen's one granite shoe that she still has you know <laughs> yeah. like to, to they're holding out yeah to save and, and all the men are just going for the goblins heads but they're too hard you know they they have to they have to go for the feet yeah curdy burst in dancing and gyrating and stamping and singing like a small incarnate whirlwind uh, and then he sings this song and uh and and his song talks about how she has uh six toes the queen gave a howl of rage and dismay and before she recovered her presence of mind curdy having begun with the group nearest him had 11 of the knights on their legs again stamp on their feet he cried as each man rose and in a few minutes the hall was nearly empty, the goblins running from it as fast as they could, howling and shrieking and limping and cowering every now and then as they ran to cuddle their wounded feet in their hard hands or to protect them from the frightful stamp stamp of the armed men. That's how they rout the goblins. And Curdy makes all the difference because he knows that goblins have tender feet. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, Again, this uh, did not make too big of a deal because I know we don't. We try not to do the one one for one tie down to the sort of the spiritual elements of things, but like I do, mm-hmm. it does sort of make me chuckle how the enemy in this situation, the way to defeat the enemy is not the way we would expect. You know, it's not the way that the soldiers are like, we'll just fight them off with our own power. It's something sort of ridiculous. It's something sort of silly yeah. in its own way. Yeah. And so, yeah, it, again, to tie that back to the sort of spiritual dimension, the way that Curdy and the soldiers find victory is not in their own power. It's not in the way they would expect but it's in sort of a comedic funny unlikely source of victory which i I love stories with those yeah yeah and fortunately the princess is not kidnapped by prince Harelip at all even though the king and all the guards and curdy think that she has been because they can't find her in the house but it turns out that earlier the princess was led by her great-grandmother's ring to curdy's mother's house curdy finds her there and the two are reconciled regarding the great-grandmother. Uh, Curdy believes in her now. Curdy tells his mother to take the princess to her house. And while he and his father stop the goblins from flooding the mine and killing the miners, because he knows that now that the plan to marry Princess Irene is not going to work out, the goblins are just going to try to flood the mine. They seem to think that the miners are, like, super important to the king and to the kingdom. They go, but they see that the miners have reinforced the mine very well. There doesn't seem to be a weak place. So even if the goblins flood the mine, the miners aren't going to drown. So they go back up. Curdy's mother hasn't been able to take Irene back to the palace because of a storm. Uh, so Curdy, um, in the storm, followed by his mother and father, takes uh, brings Irene back to the palace, where her king papa is overjoyed that she's not below the with the goblins. That is when Irene tells her father all about Curdy and. Uh, says, this is the minor boy that rescued me before from the goblins, and I promised him a kiss, but Ludi said that he was too low for a princess to kiss, but I know that a princess always must keep her promise. And her, her father says, yes, she she must. And so Irene gives Curdy a kiss. That debt is paid. So what's the next thing that happens? Meanwhile, while everyone is paying their kisses to one another and uh, celebrating there very briefly, uh, reunited with King Papa. Surprise! The goblins are flooding the mines. Yeah. Just as their plan A has failed, they're resorting to plan B. But fortunately, because the miners have reinforced the thinner places of the mine, the water shoots back towards the goblins, ends up going out of the the hole that they dug through the wine cellar, and starts flooding the castle. Now, this doesn't work out very well for the goblins because the queen and the king and so many of our favorite goblin characters that we've come to know and love, like Prince Harelip, they were in the line of fire along the way. And so they very quickly see that the goblins have been defeated by their demise, by their own design. 
and they're caught in their own snare, so to speak. Uh, Curdy hears the water. Curdy can tell what's happening because he sort of has an idea of what the goblins are doing. So he can tell the water's on its way up through the wine cellar into the rest of the house. So he quickly tells the king and everyone says, hey, everyone follow me. And so they run out of the house, save everyone out of the house as soon as possible. The water crashes through the castle. A huge amount of water comes pouring up through the basement, through the floors. Fortunately, everyone was saved thanks to the bravery of little Curdy. Everyone except the goblins. R.I.P. Prince Harelip. Does that remind you? Does that remind you of any other that sort of getting caught in your own snare, sort of the bad guys falling apart because of their own evilness? Does that ring any bells for you? Like all the Inklings stuff. <laughs> <laughs> Take your yeah. uh, except for except for like Paralandra, where he has to just like yeah. beat the heck out of this you know guy who's possessed by the devil. But uh, but just about everything else, yeah, it's uh, it's hoisted by their own petard, whether it's Sauron or King Miraz um, and uh, Prince Caspian. Yep. Yep. They will fall into the trap they've dug for themselves, as the Psalms say. Yeah, that's very much, uh, what is it, Queen Esther? The Esther story mm-hmm. of how, I'm going to forget the guy's name. Haman. Haman, thank you. The story of Esther yep. and Haman, and Haman thinks he's going to be the winner, and he sets up all these gallows, and he's going to get them. He's going to get Mordecai. And then, of course, he ends up being hung on the Ozone Gallows. Mm-hmm. That's one of my favorite stories. That's one yep. of my favorite books, just yep. because of the sweet narrative build of that whole little story. It's great. It's got, there's yeah. so much irony, and it's such a it's such a great such a great piece of literature as well. And, and yeah. of course, the goblins remind me a bit of the Egyptians, um, sort of floating in the Red Sea. Um but these goblins are floating in the wine cellar, which I suppose makes the water kind of red. I don't know. Princess ends up moving off with her king papa, but do not fear. The princess and the and Curdy will continue to you know will will continue their friendship when the king comes back to visit the palace, and uh, and we'll see more of them and the princess and Curdy. The goblins, it turns out mostly drowned, but there were a few that survived. Gradually, they reformed their ways. Uh, until they became, according to McDonald, more like the Scotch brownies, who I guess are apparently, you know, it's not a dessert, but it's a, <laughs> uh, a type of goblin that is not as mean as the uh, as the ordinary uh, type of goblin that we are used to. Oh, it does it does end with, but the latter were merciless to any of the Cobb's creatures. The miners were merciless to any of the Cobb's creatures that came in, in their way until at length they all but disappeared. So the Cobb's creatures wiped out completely, but some of the goblins survive and they become nicer. well anything else about the story that we should mention it was it was a really fun i'm so glad you picked this story to do a couple episodes on because yeah it is such a great it fits so well in the bookcase next to all of the other sort of inklings books and inklings discussions we've had this season there's so many ties hints and seeds of ideas that the inklings really hammer home in all of their different writing and uh, yeah i think this is this has been a really joy a real joy and a real blessing to read and yeah looking forward to princess and curdy whenever that day comes on yes yes all right so final thing we need to talk about and this is a very serious concern um, as you all know we live with the ever-present risk of goblin invasion but there are ways to fight back through human ingenuity what I want to do is, is basically just kind of brainstorm. And listeners, if you want to send your own ideas in, we'd, we'd love to hear them because this is something, this is a conversation we should all be having more often. Uh, these are uncertain times and, and goblins do occasionally break up through people's wine cellars mm-hmm. And, mm-hmm. and try to kidnap princesses. And what are some possible inventions, some possible ways other than the tried and true methods of like, you know, ordinary foot stomping and, rap battling um, that, that you could think of, Logan, to beat those goblins back or, or maybe even prevent them. Prevention is the first step, obviously. The best offense is a good defense. So that is that's where you got to start. Well, when you ask me what my idea of a goblin defense mechanism is, my first thought went to sort of a Dr. Seuss contraption you know like dr seuss always yes, had a great like knack. the butter battle book yes a great knack for like yeah. creating these amazing 
shapely and just the way he illustrated too just the way every little line comes together and the arm there would be arms coming out every which way and uh, i would imagine instead of arms coming out and holding you know all the cat in the hat type items it would just be nothing but shoes just big huge stomping boots coming out 50 or 60 down at the bottom or maybe in a big instead of tank treads just sort of like a circuit a big oval with boots that sort of circle around sort of that way you can tread through town and stomp on as many toes as you need to that's sort of what i came with that's my first thought of coming up with that so yeah well boots have proven to be quite effective in the past and having a machine that you know has many boots um seems to be a good way to go um to Mm -hmm. uh show our enemies below that we mean business i think i think another thing is that you know often with poetry courses increasingly rare in our world it's it's becoming less and less likely that we will have the kind of auditory means of combating the goblins that that has also proven to be you know very effective deterrent with recent advances in ai i think it's not impossible that we could, you know, get an app on our phones, you know, just for the like normal home incursions that goblins make. Just get an app on our phones uh, that kind of listens to our voice and then just sort of makes nonsense rhymes to the things that we say. I mean, the fact is we're not as good at poetry as we used to be. Um, we're not as good at um, thinking up rhymes as we used to be. I mean, if you can, then great. But the rest of us might need a little help. And we have help with so many other things that we used to be able to do on our own uh, with, with these phones that, uh, um, you know, we'll, we'll go through the process of developing this a bit more, maybe apply for some patents. Yeah, say so call in our favors from Boeing and the mm-hmm. DOD friends. And yeah, we'll get right on this yeah. deep thinking AI algorithm that likes to come up with uh, children's rhymes as our first primary line of defense. I think that's a great idea. But of course, the danger is always becoming goblins ourselves. Oh my gosh. Man, thank you so much for joining me on this podcast. Uh, this is, listeners, the last podcast of the second season we will be back later this year with our third season we'll also be occasionally releasing things it won't be total radio silence from us from now until then but yeah this is the end of our second season but thank you all for joining us uh logan is there anything else you wanted to say regarding that Thank you, everyone, for listening. Thanks for helping make the show as fun as it is. We have a lot of big things planned, and we're very excited about what's ahead for the show. Big shout out to several of our collaborators through the season. Serena Higgins, Sophie Burkhart, Mez Bloom, Andrew Lazo. Uh, The guys with Pints with Jack are always super supportive of the show. Thank you, Cora Burton, for coming in. Big thank you as well to William Flaherty, who also does the um, All About Jack podcast, as well as a number of other things, um, and who it was my pleasure to meet in person in Oxford recently, uh, which was which was great. And also a really big thank you to scholar Jason M. Baxter. And thank you, listeners. Thank you for tuning in. Thanks for making the show as much fun as it is. And yeah, while we're working on our prep plans for season three make sure to check us out on facebook on youtube on podbean and uh share share us with your friends if you know someone if you really care for them if you want them to have a more enriched soul and a more enriched spiritual life and have some fun along the way you gotta just tell them about the inkling sorority hour if you have ideas for things that you would want to see in season three, please write in inklingsvarietyhour at gmail.com. Send us those ideas. And if you would like to be you know, be on the show talking with us about these works, we are um, happy to have you on. Logan, a huge thank you to you. I'll see you all in a few months for season three. Encounter full of joy, unscheduled on the decent plan, with here an addict of Tolkien. Yeah, Charles Williams.